Believe me, I've known her for many years, and she's a living expression of what she just sang, and consistently so. Appreciate that very much. That was beautiful. Thanks, Carol. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And there'll be no cookies today, Stephen, so I'm sorry. <laughs> um, fellow cookie monster. <clears throat> Before we get started, I want to say a belated thank you to all of you, and I wanted to wait until the message because this goes out to our groups and people who listen to the messages across the country and in other countries. Wanted to thank you for your kindness during the Christmas holiday. Many words of encouragement. I haven't read them all, but there's a time every year where I sit down and read all the cards. Pam collects them all, and I read every one of them. It's, it usually takes an hour or so. And it's always, it's kind of like reading the Bible, and I appreciate it very much. Your kindness, your generosity, your gifts, your words of encouragement. I'm also very grateful all the time and never mention it enough for all of those of you who are faithful to the word, loyal to the mind of Christ, for your service, for your co-laboring, and it reminds me of 1 Peter, those who teach as God gives ability, those who administrate as God gives the grace, and those who serve in every way in ways that we'll never see, we do not see, ways that will be rewarded only before the Lord when he appears. And so... Thank you. On behalf of Pam and I, we both express our great gratitude to you. For those who have given and those who give consistently. And we certainly hope that no one ever gives to the detriment of their own personal responsibilities and their family responsibilities. That's never a necessity or never a requirement. Neither is giving at all. We're grateful for the generosity. I've been able to teach and preach the Word of God without having a tent-making ministry now for nearly four and a half decades in this area and years before that also in other places. And I'm very grateful to the Lord for His generosity. And I like to think of Paul's words when he said that he received the generosity of the Philippians as a fragrant aroma, as, fa as the Father receives the fragrant aroma of the sacrifice of his Son. So today, let's get to it. The title, if we're going to have one for the message today, Jesus, the most important thing about the New Covenant. <clears throat> While listening to Christ and the Passover, part 25, by Pastor Messick, Yes, there are 25 plus, I think 26 now, 26, on Christ and the Passover. It's actually a brilliant series, extremely well-researched, very well-developed, and hanging together as a great series. But while listening to Christ and the Passover, part 25, I was reminded of the enormous importance of the New Covenant which is our subject in the second half of Hebrews 8. 
In fact, the theme of the New Covenant carries through the rest of this section to its culmination in Hebrews 10, 15 to 18, in which the gist of Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34, really 31, 31 to 34, is re-quoted, especially with regard to God's non-remembrance of sins. The quotation of the passage is in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which is the Septuagint in Jeremiah 38, 31 to 34. It's the most extensive quotation, the lengthiest quotation from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Now, there are, of course, hundreds of allusions. There's 700 and some in Revelation alone, allusions to the Old Testament. There are quotations and allusions throughout the New Testament. Hebrews is the richest in terms of the frequency of allusions to Old Testament scriptures, as well as quotations. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which prophesies the New Covenant, is the most extensive quote of an Old Testament passage in the New Testament scripture. And I think that lends itself to its importance pretty greatly. So its importance is up there with Psalm 110.1, which is the most frequently quoted of the Old Testament passages and alluded to in the Old Testament, of the, of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It's Psalm 109.1 in the Septuagint. Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. Again, that's the most often quoted and alluded to verse and that includes Hebrews, where it's quoted in Hebrews 1.13 and alluded to in Hebrews 10.13. But we also found it, find it quoted in Matthew 22.44, Mark 12.36, Luke 20.42-43, Acts 2.35, and alluded to in Ephesians 1.20, where it's rarely recognized as such, Colossians 3.1, Hebrews 1, 3, 8, 1, 10, 12 to 13, 12, 2, and Revelation 3, 21. So as far as the Jeremiah quotation, almost the entire middle section that we're involved with now, Hebrews 8, 1 through 10, 18, that whole section deals with the prophesied new covenant and by extension, the new covenant community. Now, this is how we're developing this doctrine. We're moving toward a doctrine of what Bernard Lonergan called vertical finality. That which I define, and I'm going to define it because we've mentioned it over the years a few times, including times in 2019. We've moved toward a doctrine. We're moving there now called vertical finality. I would define vertical finality this way. It's the movement of a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus and by the Spirit of grace toward a goal, which is the glorification of God in our bodies, which are God's, which belong to God. I'll say that again. Vertical finality I would define as the movement of a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus and by the Spirit of grace toward a goal an end or an objective, which is the glorification of God in our bodies, which belong to God, 1 Corinthians 
involved in this ever onward and ever upward advance. And that's why we meet together in church, to have an ever onward, ever upward, never backward, never downward, unless you're dealing with a, the downward movement of humility, humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Involved in this ever onward and ever upward advance, Philippians 3.14, is an increase in grace. And with that increase, an increase in proficiency, becoming proficient in the perception of spirit-given insights and a greater proficiency, that's the key word too, proficiency, a greater proficiency from God for us to be competent ministers of a new covenant and to be God's 21st century apostolate. This will involve a continual fine-tuning, and that's again what happens when we assemble together or when we listen to the word as many do that are not present here, but are listening faithfully. And I've been finding out just how many there are, and there's a lot. This will involve a continual fine-tuning of our response of total trust, Proverbs 3, 5, in God's care and providence. And you'll see many more verses in the printed version of this. And obedience to his gracious will, called the obedience of faith. With the multiplication of grace, and the Petrine epistles begin with that in 1 Peter 1, 2. With the multiplication of grace, or the constant increase of grace from God, is an increase in our knowledge of God. The knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how the Petrine epistles end in 2 Peter 3.18. Begins with grace, the multiplication of grace... 1 Peter 1.2 ends in 2 Peter 3.18 with the increase of grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For according to one of the better promises on which the new covenant is founded, and it's founded on better promises, as we will see and have seen, One of those better promises on which this covenant is founded is the promise spoken by the Lord that, quote, all will know me. All will know me. Jeremiah 31, 34. Vertical finality is the process spoken of by Paul when he says that I may know him, that I may know Christ Jesus. It's a progressive knowing. And so vertical finality, by my definition, is the process spoken of by Paul when he says, that I may know Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.10. And the progress spoken of in the community at large when Peter says, grow in grace and in the knowledge, notice that again, in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What all will know, you know now, and grow in that knowledge now. After all, as censor bearers, and that is our New Year's apocalypse, censor bearers in the triumphal procession, of the conquering Christ.
That's what we are. What God spreads through us and our incense bearing in every place is the fragrance of his knowledge. That's 2 Corinthians 2.14. Through us, God is spreading the knowledge of himself as the God who shows mercy to all. who in Christ has reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, who forgives our sins and chooses never to remember them ever again. For this too is a better promise associated with the new covenant. Hebrews 8.12, Hebrews 10.17, Jeremiah 31.34, Septuagint 38.34. The knowledge of God our personal knowing of him in reality is the highest possible value to the New Covenant community and to the world. And it is only by conversions, intellectual, moral, spiritual, psychic conversions, that that knowledge of God is seen to be of such value and held to be of such value. Again, as the Lord himself says in Jeremiah 9, this is what the Lord says. The wise person must not boast in his wisdom. The strong person must not boast in his strength. The rich person must not boast in his wealth. Instead, if someone boasts, let him boast that he understands and knows that I am the Lord, who does mercy and saving judgment and righteousness on the earth, because these things constitute my will, says the Lord. So all along this parade route that we're traveling, this King's Highway, what is required is humility, always and without exception. For as the scripture says, my soul will make her boast in the Lord, and the humble will hear and be glad and rejoice. And God gives grace to the humble. And again, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will elevate you in due time, which is his time. Vertical finality, then, is the coordinated spiritual progress of the new covenant community. Let me expand it further. Vertical finality is the coordinated spiritual progress of the new covenant community through the grace orientation of humility. First thing about humility is that it is oriented to authority, the authority of God's authorized word. Second thing about it, and equally important, is its orientation to, to grace, that which we could not ever earn or deserve. 
So let me expand the definition again and repeat it. Vertical finality is the coordinated spiritual progress of the New Covenant community through the grace orientation of humility toward the absolutely supernatural goal of the glorification of God. To understand vertical finality, therefore, we must understand the New Covenant community. To understand the New Covenant community, NCC for note-takers, we must understand the New Covenant, its importance, and what is most important about it. What am I doing then? I'm expanding on question three from increment 249. What is the New Covenant? Which is really an expansion on question two in that same increment from December 18th. Who is Jesus Christ? Before we ask what is the New Covenant, we find that Jesus Christ is the mediator of this covenant and that he is the most important thing about the new covenant. What is most important about the new covenant is not its character of being unconditional, unilateral, or even its character of being new, better, or everlasting. The new covenant is indeed new and better and everlasting. Those three adjectives are given in Hebrews. It is indeed based on better promises, promises that find their yes in Jesus Christ, their amen in him. So it can, in some senses, be called unilateral. That's a theological term from men. New, better, and everlasting is a divine term in the scripture. Unilateral and unconditional are probably correct terms, but they're theological and from men. So the new covenant can, in some senses, be called unilateral and unconditional. It can also most fittingly be called everlasting, just like the everlasting covenant made with David. So significant was the covenant that God made with David that on his deathbed and in his dying words, David mentions that God made an everlasting covenant with him. And in the best translations I could find, David said, though my house is not so and not qualified to be so, God has made an everlasting covenant with me. David knew grace, knew it very well. He knew it through failure. He knew it through sin. Those who think they are without sin are destined to be very humbled by sinning. All have sinned, and we keep on falling short of the glory of God. So it's fittingly called everlasting as the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 23.5. More importantly, though, 
It is a covenant mediated by Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing about it. The new covenant derives its significance Christologically. The leading thing we can say about the new covenant is that it's mediated by Jesus, our great archpriest. The new covenant is made by God and mediated by Jesus, the divine man. And that's very important. The new covenant is made by God and mediated by the only mediator between God and humanity, the man meaning the divine man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. And it is given everlasting authorization by the blood of this divine man. That's one reason why Hebrews 8.6 precedes the lengthy quotation of Jeremiah 31.31-34, Note it in Hebrews 8, 6. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a superior ministry that is superior to Aaron's. And with that, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on the basis of better promises. Those promises are enucleated, or nucleated rather. They are found in the nucleus of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And also, as importantly, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. We're going to make a lot of hay out of that one. And this is why following the expositional section, we're in an expositional section now of Hebrews. There are two kinds of sections in Hebrews. There's the expositional, which is a teaching. Then there's the exhortational, which is the exhortation or the exhorting part or the encouragement part or the impartation of incentive for action. Following the expositional section ending with Hebrews 10.18 and at the beginning of the extensive exhortation beginning in Hebrews 10.19, the Holy Spirit through the pastor teacher says this, and you can turn there if you want. This is my translation from Hebrews 10.19 to 23. Therefore, brothers and sisters, having confidence that we have the right of entry into the heavenly sanctuary by the blood of Jesus on the newly paved and living highway right through the curtain. This is the king's highway. It's a newly paved. That's, that's the sense given in the Greek text. The word hodos means highway a newly paved and living highway right through the curtain. That curtain is the flesh of Christ, the incarnation, and then the Christ event. And having a great archpriest over the the household of God, let's approach with a heart made authentic with full assurance, hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and bodies washed with pure water. This is not a reference to baptism, but it's a reference to the water of the word in Ephesians 5.26 and John 15.3, which purifies our mortal bodies for the activity of the priesthood. So he says, let's approach with a heart made authentic, 
with full assurance, hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold on tight to the acknowledgement of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. And it's not of your faithfulness, but of his faithfulness. Again, the most important thing about the new covenant is not its unconditionality. It's being better. It's being based on better promises. Or it's being unilateral or even everlasting. The most important thing about the new covenant is Jesus. It's mediator. Now, I had to remember this, so I'm asking you to remember it with me. My original intention all the way back in doing and living theology, where I started Hebrews, really, my original intention in Hebrews 2020 was to do a theological exegesis of this heavenly homily. The theological significance of the new covenant is that it was made by God. Made, same word used, God made the heavens and the earth. So there is a wonderful connection between the new covenant and the new creation. There's a wonderful universality, or as my friend Charlie would say, omniversality to the new covenant. The most important thing about the new covenant is not its unconditionality, but Jesus. And the original idea here, theologically, the new covenant was made by God. The Christological significance, that means the significance with the relationship to Christ, is that it is mediated by Jesus. Made by God, mediated by Jesus. It has been executed in his act of obedience and approved and confirmed by his blood. The pneumatological and ecclesiological, now what does that mean? Pneumatology is study of the Holy Spirit or of spirituality. Ecclesiological means the study of the church. The pneumatological and ecclesiological significance of the new covenant is that God places his spirit, called the Lord the Spirit, in the new covenant community to cause them to fulfill his commands. And that the Lord the Spirit, which is the Lord Jesus Christ existing in the realm of the Spirit, in the activity of the Spirit, in the presence of the Spirit, that's what the Lord the Spirit means, as we'll see as we develop this further transforms that community from one degree of glory to another into the image of the mediator of that covenant and by doing that conforms them to his obedience. We become conformed to his obedience which is his self-forgetting love. The the homartiological significance, homartiology, the study of sin, The homardiological significance of the new covenant is that the forgiveness of sins is obtained by it as well as the promise that God will no longer remember neither Israel's sins 
nor the sins of the whole world. The soteriological significance having to do with salvation of the new covenant is that it not only signals but brings about a new creation of all things. And again, you'll have verse references in all this. If I gave them all today, the message would be 15 minutes longer. As such, the new covenant is a universally saving covenant. In Jesus' words, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Matthew 26, 28. Which means poured out for all. As we've seen when Jesus said, I have come not to be served. The Son of Man has not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, he was deliberately being humbly understating his purpose. For the many there means all. Paul understood it as the interpreter of Christ in 1 Timothy 2.6 when he said that Christ, the mediator between God, not and Israel, God and not just the church, but God and humanity, gave himself as a ransom for all of humanity. So when Jesus said this is that my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many he meant shed for all, poured out for all, sprinkled on the mercy seat for all as a witness that all are redeemed by his blood. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him and we have been made the righteousness of God in him. So the divine man, Christ Jesus, the sole mediator between God and humanity, gave his life as a ransom for all. The sole and singular, S-O-L-E and singular, mediator between all of God and all of humanity, in whom all of God resides bodily, and all of humanity is represented. In Jesus Christ, all of God resides, and all of humanity is represented. By virtue of his blood poured out and his life laid down as a ransom price to redeem all of humanity, he is the mediator of a new covenant prophesied by God, speaking in the prophet. Remember, Hebrews hits the ground running by saying God who in times past spoke in the prophets, like Jeremiah in 31, 31 to 34, has spoken in these last days in his son in terms of a completion of that prophetic utterance. So again, the mediator of the new covenant prophesied by God, speaking in the prophet Jeremiah. God prophesied this covenant in Jeremiah and spoke in his son in these last days by the completion of that covenant in him. That the new covenant is for the benefit of all of humanity is denoted by saying that the divine man Christ Jesus is the mediator between God and humanity. It does not say he is a mediator between God and Israel or between God and the church. 
It does not mean that Christ Jesus is the mediator between God and us. Unless you mean by us all of humanity over the course of all time. Now when it comes to the new covenant made in the blood of Jesus, we're in fact dealing with what God called something I will do, he said. So I've used the term unconditional, but I always like to reflect on that. Is that a good term? In one way it is, because, but when you think of unconditional, you think of no human involvement, but there was human involvement, the involvement of a divine human in the new covenant. And so the new covenant's already been completed in Jesus Christ. And we'll see this in a moment. In our passage, God says, I will seven times. The last five I wills are a slap in the face of the king of Babylon, who also said five times I will in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. We'll look there in a minute. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He doesn't say anything about what you will do or what I will do or what Israel will do. He says one thing about what they will not do. They will not say, know the Lord to their fellow citizen, meaning in Oronopolis, for all will know me from the least to the greatest, the greatest to the least. So when it comes to the new covenant made in the blood of Jesus, we're in fact dealing with what is called an unconditional covenant. I want to make sure, though, that you know that unconditional is a term described by man. For God says seven times through Jeremiah that what he will do regardless of any creaturely response or lack of response. I heard it again this week. A very famous preacher, he's now with the Lord, and of course everything's settled there, but he's with the Lord. But he said, you are saved by the unconditional grace of God. And then he went on to say, but you must believe. And if you don't believe, you will go to an eternal damnation, etc. That, that is a, what we would call cognitive dissonance. It's a contradiction in the mind. And there's a contradiction in the mind of preachers all over the place today. Is it unconditional grace that saves us or is it unconditional but then conditioned? Even Lewis Berry Chafer said that the new covenant was unconditional, and he said the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, and it was, and I might demonstrate that if I have time down the road, not here, not today. The Abrahamic covenant, but then Lewis Berry Chafer said in Grace, his book on grace, that it was dependent not on Abraham's faithfulness, but upon his faith. And then I said, wait a minute, is it unconditional? And therefore, if it's unconditional, it can't even be conditioned on the faith of Abraham. And then that opens up a whole new spool of thread that has to be rewound. And I was going to do that today, and then I realized, wow, that's another message altogether. What did God mean when he said to Abraham, now, after he offered Isaac, and then the Lord said, hold back the knife, and he said, now, the angel of the Lord spoke from heaven and said, now I know 
that you will not even withhold your only son, your son, your only son from me. Therefore, I will, and then he said, I will fulfill the covenant with you. What did that mean? Was that conditioned upon Abraham's supreme act of obedience in offering his son? And the answer to that is no, but yes, because guess whose faith Abraham had? The Bible says that the spirit of Christ was in the prophets. We were told the spirit didn't indwell anyone before the cross of Christ. I was taught that by dispensational teachers, good teachers. Then I, said, then I thought, well, why was the spirit of Christ in the prophets in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11? The spirit of Christ was in the prophets. And then I thought about Abraham. He wasn't very exemplary when Abimelech wanted Sarah in his harem because she was a very beautiful woman. And Abraham didn't want to get killed to have his wife taken from him, so he called her his sister. <laughs> There's one of our great exemplars of faith, Abraham. So Abimelech took her into his harem. But before he consummated that so-called marriage, he had a dream. And he saw God in the dream. And God said to him, not, oh, hello, I love you. He said, you're a dead man. You are dead. You're a dead man. Because Sarah, whom you took into your harem, is the wife of a prophet. Abraham, God said, is a prophet. And he's going to pray for you, and the result is you're going to live. You're going to live and not die because Abraham, a prophet, is going to pray for you. Now, why did I say all that? Because Abraham is a prophet, therefore the spirit of Christ was in the prophets, therefore the spirit of Christ was in Abraham, therefore Abraham's faithfulness was the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So the covenant is still unconditional, but the covenant is also mediated in that sense by the obedience of of Jesus Christ. And we have that same spirit of faith. I just gave you the gist of what I said I wasn't going to do, but that's it. Now look at Hebrews 8, and then we're going to look at it, Isaiah 14. This, again, is my translation. I've tweaked it every time I've looked at it because there's different things that come up each time. For if indeed the first covenant had been without fault, and it wasn't, for a reason, then there would have been no room to seek for a second one, the new covenant. For finding fault with it, that's the first covenant, we're going to be explaining that down the road too. God says to them, not the NCC, but the OCC, the old covenant community, God says to them, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days when I took hold of their hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not abide by my covenant, 
And your translation probably says, and I neglected them. God pictures himself by an odd metaphor of a neglectful husband, a husband that neglects his wife. Because the whole metaphor in Jeremiah is that he's married to Israel. Israel's been unfaithful. And so God is saying that I disregarded them. But the Hebrew text, which I think is preferable in this case, says better, a better choice here. It says this. For they did not abide by my covenant, and it doesn't say I neglected them. It says they did not abide by my covenant, though I was married to them. That's what the Hebrew says. Though I was married to them. He likens the covenant to marriage. They were unfaithful, so he neglected them. But the idea is they did not honor the covenant. The weakness of the covenant wasn't in the covenant, but it was in the people to whom the covenant was made. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, what the law could not do in that it was weak because of the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and by condemning sin in the flesh of the Son of God. Romans 8, 2 and 3. But that, again, I'll be explaining all these things down the road a little bit. That's why I'm taking my time through Hebrews. So let's look at verse 9 again. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took hold of their hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not abide by my covenant, and though I was married to them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant. Note the I wills, the proliferation of I wills. This is the covenant that I will covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Now, it's the last five I wills that are most important. I will put my laws into their mind and upon their hearts. And that refers back to Deuteronomy 6, 6 where the laws that he's talking about are specifically the law to love the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, which sums up the whole of the law. I will put my laws into their mind upon their hearts. I will inscribe them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And none of them will teach his fellow citizen or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me from the least to the greatest. Because I will be merciful to their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. These last five I wills, uttered by the Creator, counteract the five defiant I wills of the creature. In Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, this is the king of Babylon, whom Habakkuk calls the man of pride, who is a reflection of Satan's ambition his prideful ambition. Whether or not the allusion is to the fall of Satan here doesn't matter. It probably isn't, but there is a reflection there. Isaiah 14, here's the king of Babylon at the time. He says, God says to him, how you have fallen from heaven, day star, a name that he gave himself, the king of Babylon, rising early in the morning. He has been crushed to the earth, this one who sent light to all the nations. You said in your mind, God says, through the prophet, the prophet 
Isaiah to the king of Babylon, you said in your mind, the annoy, your mind and heart, I will ascend to heaven, something Jesus did after he descended. I will place my throne above the stars of heaven. I will sit on a high mountain. The word high is hupselos, used in Hebrews 1.3, where Jesus is sit, seated in heaven. He's on Mount Zion in the heavenly Zion. In the lofty mountain range toward the north, I will ascend above the clouds. He doesn't come with the clouds like the Son of Man. He rises above the clouds. I will be equal to the Most High. Remember Melchizedek? High priest of the Most High God. So he says, I will ascend to heaven. I will place my throne above the stars. I will sit on a high mountain. I will ascend above the clouds. I will be equal to the Most High. He goes on to say, yeah, but you're going to get pulled down into Sheol. Not hell, death. You're going to die. The ultimate humiliation, death. So in the prophecy of the new covenant, God says all that he will do. The essence of religion is that I will ascend. I will make myself equal to God. I will do works that will please God and cause him to approve of me. I will do this. Even I will believe and he will justify me. But in the prophecy of the new covenant, God says all that he will do. Nothing is said about what the house of Israel will do or the house of Judah. Only once does the new covenant prophecy say something about human doing, and that is to say what they will not do. None will teach his fellow citizen or his brother saying, know the Lord, because all will know me from the least to the greatest. So the sevenfold I will of God reveals the new covenant to be the quintessential expression of an unconditional and unilateral covenant. The same divine will, the will of the infinitely loving Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the will by which the incarnate word, his only eternally begotten son, offered his body, Hebrews 10.10, on the cross, and by which the Son poured out his blood for the forgiveness of the sins of many, that is, the whole world, 1 John 2.2. 2. Jesus, the Son of God, therefore, is the anchor of hope, the pledge or guarantee, and the guarantor and mediator of the new covenant. He is, as well, the great archpriest whose eternal sacrifice gave formal confirmation to the new covenant, so that it is, in fact, everlasting, Hebrews 13.20. It's better in comparison to the old because, first, the new covenant has a better mediator, and, second, because it's based on better promises, promises that have their yes in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 1.20, the amen, the faithful 
and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation, as he calls himself all those things in Revelation 3.14. God's covenant with David is everlasting, 2 Samuel 23.5. David made mention of this in his dying words. For his, this everlasting covenant held much value to him. Unilateral, again, is also a fairly good adjective to, to describe the New Covenant community, or the New Covenant, rather, inasmuch as the covenant is performed or undertaken by one party. In the case of the New Covenant, God is that one party. In Jesus Christ, however, the promises on which the New Covenant were based were yes and amen, in that he is the representative of all the New Covenant community, For God inscribed his laws on the heart of Jesus Christ and caused him to walk in his ordinances, which amounted to total love for God, his Father, and total love for his neighbors. For he considered all the human race his neighbor in becoming a partaker of flesh and blood, or blood and flesh. And he loved his neighbor by giving himself as a ransom for all, to redeem us from the curse of the Old Covenant. Now I'm going to bring three quotes to you in a hammer-like fashion and then give you something that's the most important thing I've said today in this message. First of all, Luke Timothy Johnson in his commentary on Hebrews, and I'm still reading all these commentaries a little at a time, Distinguishing between the Old and the New Covenants wrote this. He said, what is different between the two covenants is not the desired end, which he finds to be loving God totally and loving one another as we love ourselves, but the divine agency to accomplish that end. I'll say that again. What is different is not the desired end, but the divine agency to accomplish that end. This is a covenant that God will not only make, poyen, but will complete or fulfill, sintelain. For Hebrews, God has accomplished this by the human response of Jesus. God has accomplished this by the human response of Jesus, who was perfected through his faithful obedience. I've said it another way in the past. You're going to heaven because of Jesus' response to God, not yours. Jesus' response to God on your behalf, in your behalf, not your response to God. That's unconditional grace. Expressing this thought similarly, Ilaria Romelli wrote this, the Logos, meaning Jesus Christ, of course, renovates humans and makes them new creatures through the communication of its spirit, the Logos spirit, which we're going to see is the the Lord, the spirit. Qua Logos, qua means as, simply. I don't know why people use Latin when they can use English, but qua Logos, or as the Logos, Christ bestows the Father's goods. Qua human, or as human, he receives those goods and thus joins humanity to God. The aim and effect of Christ's sacrifice is that death might be destroyed once and for all and that human beings might be renewed according to the image of God. That's good. Again, Karl Barth, 
who sees a general covenantal relationship of God with all mankind. He sees an overwhelming, overarching covenantal relationship of God with mankind. It's indicated by the rainbow sign of Noah, of course, but he chimes in here with this. Now listen carefully to this, because this is where I'm taking off and closing. The covenant broken by Israel and the whole of humanity, but never repudiated or destroyed by God, is maintained in the life act of this one man. He does that which is demanded and expected in the covenant as the act of human faithfulness corresponding to the faithfulness of God. As the Son of God, he is obedient man, who not only filled and impelled by the Spirit, who is not only filled and impelled by the Spirit, but exists in the activity of this Spirit. Jesus Christ exists in the activity of this Spirit. We're getting close to what Paul meant when he said, by the Lord I mean the Spirit, the Lord, the Spirit. Now hang in there for this. Establishing his work, incorporating him in himself as the capacity to receive the grace of God and its influence in the creaturely world. He is Numa Zoyopoyun, which is a life-giving spirit. And this is what really hit me. This is months ago when I read this, and it's been working in me ever since. He is the life-giving spirit, as Paul calls him, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. But he made a connection I've never seen before. Not only does God call him, or Paul call him, a life-giving spirit. Jesus himself is a life-giving spirit. But he also calls the Lord the spirit or the Spirit, the Lord, in 2 Corinthians 3.17. And as such, the man from heaven, the second and definitive, the eschatos Adam, the last Adam, the elect, the beloved, on whom there rests divine good pleasure in defiance of the sin of man. Now, this is where I have something in bold print. In 1 Corinthians 15.45, this is me now, Paul calls Jesus a life-giving spirit. And in 2 Corinthians 3.17, he calls the spirit the Lord. The Lord our God is one Lord, the Lord the Spirit. And this really figures into why the new covenant is a, an unconditional covenant, why the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional and unilateral. It's only performed by one because Jesus Christ fulfilled the human side of any covenant. Every covenant has two parties in it. Even though a unilateral covenant, only one party acts responsibly and acts definitively as in the new covenant. But Jesus Christ acted as the mediator. But in his action as the mediator, that was still a divine action because he's the Lord. And so... The continuity of God's faithfulness into Christ's faithfulness is what Paul was talking about in Romans 1.17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness, God's, to faithfulness, God's in Christ. 
and that's why everything's unconditional. But again, I'm going to be explaining those things down the road. These are just hints. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls Jesus a life-giving spirit. And in 2 Corinthians, he calls the spirit the Lord. Or the Lord the spirit. This is the year of the Lord the spirit. Therefore, Bart is certainly correct to say that Jesus, the Son of God, exists in the activity of the Spirit. That's right now where he exists, in the activity of the Spirit, transforming us. This again is me continuing. He exists in the transformative activity of the Spirit. It is the Lord, the Spirit, who transforms us the new covenant community as we look as into a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are transformed from one degree of glory to another into that image so that Jesus, quote, exists in the activity and I would say in the presence of the Spirit is also indicated, and this is where the scriptural, the lower blade data comes up, and this is why I believe this with all my soul. It's indicated by the words when Jesus says this to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Is that the second coming? No. Because they are still in this world. And if he said, I'm going and I'm coming back later, long after you die and after 50 other generations come and go, he didn't mean that. He meant, I'm, you're not going to be like orphans after I die. I'm coming right back to you. I'm coming to you. He meant in the activity of the Spirit, in the presence and activity of the Spirit of truth, of the Spirit of grace of the spirit of truth and grace because he is filled with grace and truth. So he says, again, John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. And by that, he meant that he comes to them and to you and me. He comes to us in the spirit as a life-giving spirit. In January of 1972, he came to me as a life-giving spirit and gave me life. I didn't even know what hit me. I didn't do anything. What did I do? How come you did that to me? He sneaked up on me and gave me life. He, uh, he came to me. And I was as good as an orphan in this world because I was detached from everyone, detached from everything, alone, desperate, wondering what life is, what reality is. And he came to me in the spirit and gave me life. It took me years to figure out what happened in that moment. And I'm still expounding on it. He comes to us in the spirit and as the life-giving spirit, as the Lord, the spirit. Listen up, Israel. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. So likewise, in closing, unconditional is an appropriate adjective to describe the new covenant. Yeah, it is. Inasmuch as no conditions upon humanity are attached to it, 
as was the case with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was, you do this, and I'll bless you. You do this, and you'll live. Do this, and you'll live long in the land. Nevertheless, I've decided to mostly emphasize, since I'm teaching Hebrews, I'm not going to emphasize the word unconditional or unilateral. I'm going to say what the PT there said, led by the Holy Spirit. It's new, better, everlasting. Those are the three favorite adjectives for it. The best thing about it is Jesus, the mediator. We can say that it's better because it is, in fact, unconditional. As far as man's part, we can say that it's unilateral because it is, as far as God's part, unlike the inferior Old Covenant, which was neither unilateral nor unconditional. In fact, the very curse of the law is that it depended on the inherently undependable flesh of human beings. Jesus became that curse for us, for us all. Because when he became sin, he became our shortcoming and our lawlessness, which includes our radical incapacity to perform the human side of the bilateral old covenant. He was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. Again, the new covenant is unilateral in as much as its fulfillment is on God. It's on you, God, who made the new covenant. It's better because its mediator is demonstrably superior to Moses. Recently, a comedian said about a certain candidate for a senator, he said, that person is observably stupid, and everybody laughed. And I said to myself about the comedian, that comedian is observably arrogant. I had to say that because I couldn't go up on the stage and slap him upside the head. I happen to uh, have a great regard for the candidate he was mocking and calling stupid. So, But in any case, mankind in their attempt to ascend is observably arrogant, observably proud. But they're only observably proud to the humble. When you are, if you are humble, and the case may be that you are, I don't know if I am, but if I ever accidentally stumble into humility, I begin to discern things more clearly, especially the pride that is in man, myself first. You can't see pride unless you're humble enough to see it in yourself, and then you're humble enough to see it in others. And you might even be able to help others if you take the log out of your own eye and you can take the speck out of the eye of your friend or the person that you're critiquing. Again, the new covenant can be called unilateral because it's demonstrably superior to the old in that its mediator is demonstrably superior to Moses. As God promised in the new covenant, God places his spirit the Lord, the Spirit, in a community of human persons and acts in them in such a way 
as to will and to do in them. Performing that which is to his own good pleasure. In other words, Philippians 2.13, to me, is arguably at least the best interpretation of Jeremiah 31.31-34 and its parallel passage, Ezekiel 36.26 and 27. God places his spirit in the New Covenant community, causes them to what? Fulfill his statutes. Statutes include Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord with all your heart, and judgments. Judgments include Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, put those two together and you have the whole of the law and the prophets, the full human responsibility required by God for man. Matthew 22:36-40. And so God himself acts as we walk in his statutes, his engraved laws, and follow his judgments and do them. And again, this is best interpreted by Paul in Philippians 2.13. That sums up everything. For it is God in you, both willing and doing that which is to his own good pleasure. That interprets Ezekiel 36.26-27. I will put a new heart in you. I'll take out the stony heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. And I will place my spirit in you and cause you to walk according to my statutes and observe my ordinances. And that actually says in the, in the original text, I will act in you so that you will act. I will will in you so that you will will what I will. I will act in you so that you will act as I act. Like Jesus said, up to now, the Father is acting and I'm acting. I'm only acting as the Father acts, and he's only acting as the Spirit acts. The Lord our God is one. So God himself will act so that they will walk in his statutes, which are his engraved laws on the heart, and follow his judgments. For God is in you both willing and doing. The upshot of the new covenant and the new covenant community is that we are a people in whom God is willing and doing that which is to his own good pleasure. That which is to his own good pleasure is that we love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and might, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. That is accomplished how? By God the Holy Spirit in us, the Lord the Spirit in us, pouring out the love of God in us so that as we walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh, God fulfills in us the righteousness required by Torah. Romans 5.5, 5, Romans 8.4. I've gone far enough. i got a lot more, but I'll leave it for later. Thank you for your attentiveness. And Father, thank you. May these words be written in our hearts, engraved upon our minds and souls, and as much as it's your word, we thank you, Father, that your Son has come to us, and you have come to us, Father. You and your Son have come to make your abode with us in John 14.23, because in Jesus Christ... We have fulfilled 
your commandments and obeyed your commandments. And we thank you for this privilege. Father, we can say that we are obedient because Jesus Christ was obedient as us and for us in representation of us. What a wonderful thing it is to be a new covenant community, beneficiaries of a new covenant, for we know you. And we have the privilege of knowing you, a privilege that will be given to all of humanity in all of its times. And we look forward very much to that day when all will know you from the least to the greatest. And there will be no more need for evangelism or for teaching and for saying to one another, know the Lord. We look forward to that day, Father, and help us to hold on to the confession of that hope without wavering. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.